Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Amen. We are so blessed that you can join us today. It is always a blessing when we can gather together around the Word of God, study the Word of God, and be blessed by the Word of God. Amen. Hallelujah. The Word is light. The word is life to all who find it. And that's why we go through the word to find little rays of light to give hope to a fallen world. You know, we are living in a time when we see things happening in this nation and around the world that we never thought would be possible in our lifetime. This world is degrading to the point where Jesus has to come back to save humanity. You know, we are not promised in the Bible to, that we are going to be the ones to overcome the world. We are not promised in the Bible that we are going to be the ones who you know, fix everything and then Jesus comes back and we give him the scepter of righteousness to rule and reign. No, the Bible says... Everything is going to fall apart. And then Jesus comes back to put it all right. And we are witnessing society, civilization, culture, and this world fall apart. But our hope is not in a politician. Our hope is not in the next election. Our hope is not in trying to get society as a whole to accept Jesus as their Savior. That is a goal, but that's not our hope. That is something we should strive for and always be representing Jesus before culture in our society. But it is not a requirement for Jesus to come back. You see, Jesus is going to come back when society has no more hope. When society as a whole has just rejected God and everything Christianity has to offer, that is when Jesus comes back. And we are marching headlong into that abyss right now as a nation, as a society, as a culture. 
And we need to know what the scriptures say. And today, I want to show you and teach you what the Bible has to say about the authority that the believer has. And our authority comes from Jesus. And we're going to study that. But first, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer and then we can get started. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before your throne of grace and mercy that we may obtain your mercy and find your grace to help in our time of need. Lord, it's not by our righteousness that we are even able to enter the throne room, let alone approach your throne. Father, it is only by the righteousness of Jesus that through him we have this access. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us through the scriptures. That you would reveal by the Holy Spirit to us your righteousness, your will for our life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the salvation that is only obtained through you. And we thank you, Lord, for this broadcast this day, for every listener. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that your word goes forth across this entire planet, touching hearts, changing lives. Lord, your word goes forth and does not return to you void. It accomplishes what you and the Father please, and it prospers wherever and to whomever you send it and they receive it. Father, we thank you again for this broadcast this day. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Join me in our confession of faith as we lay the solid foundation for the teaching today. We do this each and every Sunday to make sure we're building upon the Word of God. Amen. Just repeat these words after me. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, where he sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. And let's go down to, I have verse 29, but I let's go to verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24 is where we'll start to read. This is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he says, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, or the words that I'm speaking, and does them, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings or these words of mine and does not do them shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell. And the great or great was the fall of that house. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. He taught as having authority. And that's what the people were talking about. Not the sermon, but the way he taught. This is the first major sermon Jesus taught. You can go, I mean, here in the book of Matthew, it talks about his birth, which we're going to talk about briefly. It talks about the beginning of his ministry, the temptation in the wilderness, and then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the first major sermon that Jesus taught. And it's right after his ministry really began, within just a few months. Why? Why are so many people coming out to hear Jesus preach? You know, he is up on the side of a mountain. What made him go to the side of a mountain? Well, there were so many people crowding him. He had to get up above them so that his voice could carry and everyone could hear it. Amen. So why is everyone coming out there? I mean, that's how the, the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, came up because he was standing on the, the hillside preaching over the masses, kind of like an amphitheater. But why are all these people coming out to hear Jesus teach? Well, let's go back to Matthew, but this time Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll read verse 23, 24, and 25. His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which... I'm sorry, I wanted to read verse 23. Start in verse 23. Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had palsy, and he healed them. Elsewhere it says, he healed them all. Every person who was sick that came to Jesus received their healing. It never says that Jesus looked at one person and said, no, 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 I can't heal you because God's teaching you something with this sickness. No, it doesn't say that. 
Nowhere does it say Jesus like, oh wow, that's that's one, that's that's a tough one. I, I I don't know if God will actually heal you or not. No, it says when they brought these sick people to Jesus, He healed them all. Amen. In verse 25 in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. So the question again comes up. Why did all these people follow Jesus? But we see in verse 24 that his fame was going throughout the air. What fame? That he was healing people? Yeah, that's one of the parts. It says that follow him great multitudes from all of the region. Why were they following you? Well, Brother Bob, that's so easy. He's the Son of God. He's the coming Messiah. They didn't know that. They didn't recognize him as, a, as the Messiah. That's why later on when Jesus is asking Peter, he says, who do men say I am? Well, you're one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. He said, who do you say I am? And they kind of looked at each other. And, you know, well, uh, and Peter, that's what I love about Peter. He, he just stands up and says what's on his heart. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus turned around and said, Peter, Simon Barjona, you shall be Peter, a rock. And upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against. And I had a teaching before that he was talking about the, the area called Pan. And it was a, a pagan worship site. They had a large flat rock in front of this deep, what we would call a bottomless pit, a cave that went down. and It was believed that this was the entrance to hell itself. Or all the demonic spirits would come out of the, that gate. And if someone, you know, and they offered goats continuously as sacrifices on this altar. And if someone didn't have a right heart attitude towards the God Pan, that, you know, they would get sucked into the the cave and nobody would ever see him again or the spirits would come out and grab them and take them back in and that rock is in front of it's still in front of that cave today and on top of that hillside on top of that mountain above the cave is where it's believed Jesus had the what we call the mount of transfiguration but when he was saying to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. He was saying, in the face of displayed demonic power in that area, in what we would say, in the enemy's backyard, he declared his church would be built upon that rock. And guess what? There was. There was a church built on that area. But he's saying in the gates of hell, which is representation of the, the pit that is there, so the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against this church. He wasn't saying upon Peter's shoulders he's going to build the church, as many of the Catholics and the you know believe, a lot of Protestants also. He was he was making this declaration in the face of the devil himself. And that's the background behind that story. But that's not what we're talking about today. 
We are talking about why multitudes of people followed Jesus. Yes, there were healings. We understand that. Verse 23 says, He was preaching in the synagogues, and he was preaching the word of the kingdom of God. Okay, well, what were the priests and all the rabbis teaching? They were also doing this. But we just read over in Matthew chapter 7 that he taught as one having authority. What was he preaching? He was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's, let's go to verse 17. In Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time on, which is when Jesus, uh, after the temptation, right, is in verse 17, he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus was preaching. But the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, repent, because that time is near. We see John the Baptist teaching, repent for the remission of sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. It says John taught the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's what John the Baptist came preaching. But why would the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, why would that phrase draw all of these crowds to come to Jesus? Because it clearly says right here, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he preached. If you drop down to verse 23, he says, he went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This, the same thing. And he was healing the people in demonstration of what he was preaching. Amen. But why would the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, why would that draw people to him? I mean, preachers today proclaim the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true. The rabbis in Jesus' day would teach that the Messiah would come soon to restore all things and restore the kingdom of Israel to God. But what made Jesus' preaching so special that even though the, the rabbis and, and the priests in the temple were preaching that, they were preaching that the kingdom of heaven was coming, that the soon return of the Messiah was near, much as all the preachers are preaching today, in today's society. But what made all these people come to Jesus? Well, first, before we get into it, I want to look at the cultural characteristics of that day in which we live. Now, I'm probably not going to finish this teaching today, and if I don't, we'll continue it next time. Because it's important for me, as we prayed in the beginning about laying our foundation of faith, I have to lay this cultural foundation for you so you can grasp and understand the meaning behind some of these Bible verses and the specific wording that is being used that we'd kind of gloss over today. So I want to look at the cultural characteristics of the day. And can we agree that there are certain things that people just take for granted? And 
do not need to be discussed in order to make your point. Uh, For example, if I said to you that I slipped on the ice coming into the house today, well, you'd take for granted it was cold outside. If it was 90 degrees, there wouldn't be any ice out there. I didn't say it was cold outside. I just said I slipped on the ice coming inside. But you took it for granted that it was cold outside. I didn't have to give you a rundown on the weather report. If I were to say that we had a great time at the beach, well, you would assume that it was good weather to go to the beach, that we didn't go in the middle of winter. If I said we had a guest speaker at church, uh, whoever you were talking to would obviously assume that it was on what day of the week? Tuesday? No, they would assume it was on Sunday. Because that's the day that you would meet at church and a guest speaker would come. If I said we had a great night uh, Wednesday night at church, then that was specifically telling you it was Wednesday. But if I said we had a great speaker in church last week, you would assume it was on Sunday. We didn't specify, but because of the culture of going to church on Sunday, you would assume that it was on Sunday. So there are things not mentioned in the Bible that the the writers of the Bible would assume those he was writing to would take for granted and understand. The writers did not have to take the time to make the statements to clarify their meaning to the people they were writing to. Yes, the Bible is inspired, every verse is, and yes, it is written to us today as well as to them, but basically the Bible is a collection of letters. You know, Matthew is writing to the Hebrews, explaining Christ is the Messiah. And in this writings, or in his writings, He did not have to explain Hebrew things to them because they understood them in the culture in which they lived. We take the Bible and when we read it, a lot of times we will just gloss over things. Amen. That's why I want to take this moment to to pinpoint certain phrases and tie it into the culture of that day. Amen. For example, if I said to you that I got a ticket on my way here today, you would assume what? That I was speeding and got caught by the police. And somebody from a culture that did not rely on you know, the mass transportation system, you know, where everybody has a car and everybody's driving on the road, if they did not come from that type of culture, what would they assume by the statement that on the way here I got a ticket? Well, they'd probably ask you know, a ticket for what? Or maybe assume it was a ticket granting access to some special place. Unless they asked what that phrase actually meant, they would not grasp the full understanding of what I was trying to explain. Amen? Well, the same in the life of Jesus. I mean, his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, had so many people attending that he couldn't even stand on the ground and preach to everyone. He had to go up on a hillside where his voice would carry over the crowd. 
And did you ever look at the calling of his disciples? I mean, we see right here in Matthew 4, verse 18. Remember, verse 17 says, From the time of the temptation. Right after that, from that time, Jesus began to preach. That started his ministry. And to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as Jesus walked by, in verse 18, walking by the Sea of Galilee. Understand where he's at now. He's at a fishing village of Galilee. He saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and his ship was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And then we're, verse 23 we read, and Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching. Teaching. Understand that point. Teaching. Teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then healing all manner of sickness and disease. We can infer from Mark 16 that he confirmed a word preached or he confirmed the teaching he was doing with signs following. Amen. That word teaching, what does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that. Amen. Look at how Jesus called his disciples. Why would a grown man leave his business? We know Peter was married because elsewhere in the Bible it says that Jesus went into Peter's house and his mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Well, in order to have a mother-in-law, you got to have a wife. And if you're going to have a wife in that day, you're going to have a family. Why would they... Uh, can you imagine Peter going home and say, uh, I quit my job today. And his wife would say, what do you mean quit your job? You're self-employed. Yeah, I know. I'm not doing that anymore. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to follow this preacher. What? What about the boat? I don't know. I just gave it away. I left it down there. Just to give up the family business. Just to, I mean, you know, down south, if you have a boat, that's something I've seen. <laughs> it's a joke, but I've seen, you know, the, the Facebook memes that, you know, guy wanted, good wife, can cook, you know, can clean, uh, you know, and it says, you know, uh, loves to fish, loves the boats, and then it says, at the bottom it says, send picture of boat. In other words, that was the primary driving consideration for selecting his wife. But, you know, you just don't give up your own boat. That was a, a boat, even in that day, for that time and culture, was an expensive piece of equipment. I mean, you would hire on with someone who had their own boat, saving your money till the point you could buy your own boat, and then be able to hire people to work for you. And here Peter and his brother just gave it all up to follow Jesus. Think about poor Zebedee. Zebedee lost his entire workforce, or a good chunk of his crew, with no notice of them quitting. They didn't give two weeks' notice. It says they immediately left their father in the boat and followed Jesus. Amen. Why would they do that? Why would grown men give up the business to 
follow Jesus. Well, to understand that, this is where you've heard me preach this before. We're going to go over it again a little bit. In the culture of that day, much as in today's youth culture, uh, you know, the football is a huge, huge sport. And every little boy wants to be the next, you know, all-star running back, all-star quarterback, all-star, all-star, uh, you know, linebacker. They aspire to grow and, and to get better at the game and, and to enter the NFL. But if you look at the hundreds of thousands of young people playing football and rec leagues and you know they hope to get good enough to be on a high school team and there they hope to be good enough when they get picked up for college and there they hope to be good enough to actually be selected to the NFL. If you look, took the entire group of people that the freshman entries into the NFL, the rookie season, if you take the entire group and let's say it's, you know, I don't know what the actual number is, let's say it's 200 people and you take all of them of the same age group and back it all the way up to the youth football, rec football league that they would have joined to get the basics, you're talking less, less than a half a percentage point of people, of young men that make it, make their dream to play in the NFL. That's not very promising statistics, is it? Well, every Jewish boy grew up in the culture where they wanted to be a rabbi. That was like the ultimate thing. You know, the, the, the joke, like New York is, you know, you, you get your son the best education and you put him in the best college and becomes a medical doctor. And that way the mother, when she introduces her son, says, this is my son, the doctor. Because it's something special. And in Jesus' day, that something special was to be a rabbi. If you were a rabbi, you were somebody special in society. That's one of the reasons Jesus rebuked them. Saying, you love everyone to call you rabbi, rabbi in the, in the town square. And you like the best seats and all the events. And so you accept bribes or, in other words, payments to make prayers for people. And he says, it should not be like that. But here, young boys in Jewish society, young Hebrew boys, aspired to become rabbis. Amen. But most of them did not make the cut. They were very selective. That's why when it says Jesus taught in their synagogues, over here in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 23, a lot of people just read over it. Okay, well, he was teaching. Okay. But you don't understand. In that day, in that culture, they didn't just let any Tom, Dick, and Harry stand up, take the precious scrolls that were hand-copied. There were no you know, mimeograph copies. There were no Xerox copies. There were no book bindings you know, with mass printings. Each scroll was handwritten and meticulously checked for accuracy. These things were very precious. They weren't going to just let some carpenter boy come in and flip it open and try and find where it was written. No. They only allowed rabbis to touch these scrolls. 
That's why you can read this and just glean over it. Or you can read it and ask the Lord to open your eyes to each and every verse so you can get the full meaning. And that's the reason why I'm going over this today and like I said, probably next week as well. But to become a rabbi, even though the attrition rate was off the scale, to be picked to go to the next level of rabbi training was even that was really something special but what did it take to be picked well we covered before the qualifications for becoming a rabbi began basically at birth and again there was no public school system if you want to call it that where you would take your pre-k child to preschool and have them be taught the abcs and go to kindergarten and be taught you know the basics there and progress on up no you were taught at home or your family would hire tutors to teach you because the first cut in rabbi school took place at age six Excuse me. That's the first cut. At age six, you would be taken to the rabbi elementary school, if you want to call it that, to see if you were good enough to get into school and to go to the next level. And that first cut was made when you recited verbatim, word for word, the entire book of Leviticus. And these were judged by the rabbis who would be teaching in that school. If you missed one word, or if you messed up a phrase, you didn't make the cut. And at age six, you were cut from the program for life. And told to go back home, learn a trade, grow up in a family business. Much as the football players, the youth football, you know, if they have tryouts and you don't get picked, you feel so bad. That's the way it was for these boys. But if you were picked, if you were, if you recited the entire book of Leviticus, and I, I dare say most of us would not make the cut even as grown folk. How many of you can recite the book of Leviticus? And word for word. I mean, some of you can't even find the book of Leviticus in, in the Bible. Amen. <laughs> but if you did make the cut at this age, and like I said, most of the time there was no written books. You, didn't, you couldn't sit there and memorize you know, the first paragraph over and over and over. It was oral teaching. Your ability to comprehend oral teachings, retain it for thought, and then give it back. And for poorer families, it was the father's responsibility to teach his young sons the oral tradition. And you started with the book of Leviticus. For more affluent families, you could hire the tutors, the best teachers, to do this training. I dare say that is what happened to Jesus. What do you mean, Brother Bob? I thought you know his father was a carpenter. Let's go back and look. Remember at age two what happened? 
The three wise men is what we're told, but they're the Magi. They came and gave gifts to Jesus' parents. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The equivalent value in today's money would be somewhere around a couple million dollars. And then they moved to Egypt until the angel told them to come back when Herod was dead. That money... What would it be used for? You know, as a parent, your child is the son of God. Somebody special. And then out of nowhere, these three kings come and give you unimaginable wealth for your family. You know... You had to leave town in a hurry because the angel said that the king of your nation is coming to kill this child. And as you leave town in the middle of the night carrying this wealth with you, fleeing into a foreign land to seek refuge there, you hear that every child in the area under age two, the age of your child, was killed. You would know that these things are true, that your son is special. So you would use that money to hire the best teacher that money could buy. And Jesus, growing up, he learned the book of Leviticus word for word. So at age six, he was selected to go to the elementary school for rabbis. This elementary school is called Bet Sefar. It's basically the school of the book. And from age 6 to age 12, they would memorize, these children would memorize the entire first five books of the Bible word for word. That's the Torah. That's the book that the rabbis understand. And in order to understand it, you got to know what's in it. To know what's in it, you got to memorize it. So for six years, they are taught how to memorize the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And at age 12, to graduate from this elementary school, you have to recite word for word the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, word for word, which is, this test is also administered by the rabbis and probably some of the priests. That's in order to graduate. And at graduation time, once you demonstrate you know the first five books of the Bible, and you receive your graduation certificate, you now have permission to apply to the official rabbi school. And the entrance to the official rabbi school is a test on the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Oh, wait a minute, Brother Bob. You said that to graduate from elementary school, they had to recite the first five books of the Bible. How could that also be the admissions test? Because memorizing something and understanding something are two separate things. The first
first five books of the Bible, the Torah, had to be recited word for word in order to graduate from elementary school. Now to go to the school of the rabbi or the school of the book. I'm sorry, that's elementary school. To go to the school of the rabbi, that part, you had to carry on a conversation. Understanding questions and answering questions with understanding. Being able to keep the conversation going about God, pulling scriptures from the Torah and using them to reinforce your point. That test was administered by the priests and senior rabbis. If you passed that test, then you were allowed to be ministered and taught by a rabbi. Amen. Excuse me. Once you passed that test, you were sent into a special building where you would sit and wait. Because the rabbi school would go until age 30. At age 30 is where you graduated from from rabbi school. But this type of school now, you had to be hand-selected. Oh, you memorized the Torah. You demonstrated you had an understanding of it. Now you're sent into this location with all the other 12-year-olds from all of Judea. And you're waiting. And here come the graduating rabbis, one by one. They're entering this school, this room, this building and room that you are waiting in. They may even ask some additional questions to grasp your understanding. And then the rabbis would say, now these are the new rabbis, they would now pick their students that they wanted to teach. And they would say, follow me. They point at another one and say, follow me. They would point at another one and say, follow me, follow me, follow me. And then they would lead their little group out. And for the next 18 years, these 12-year-old boys growing up into being a man would be taught personally by these rabbis. They would be taught what their rabbi taught them. Just like this group that is now following their new rabbi would be taught by him, they will graduate and teach others what their rabbi taught them. Amen. That's how traditions are handed down in that culture. The ability to ask questions and keep the conversation going was the defining moment in this 12-year-old boy's life to prove he had what it take to be a rabbi. Amen? Now think about Jesus at age 12 and what the Bible says happened. Amen. Think about it. 
Remember his parents went up to Jerusalem as the custom was to give their offering of sacrifice. And then the you know, because of robbers and looters and all that, they would travel in, in packs or you know, trains of people going back home. Thinking that Jesus was in the crowd, probably with some relatives. They didn't think anything of it, and they went a full day's journey, and then they started looking for him come nightfall, and he wasn't there. They frantically searched all the camp, and he wasn't there. So the next day, they headed another day's journey back to Jerusalem, getting there probably at nightfall. And the next day, they're searching all of Jerusalem for him, and they found him in the temple. And it said that he was... Everyone that was in the temple was fascinated. They were amazed at his answer to questions and the questions that he was asking. He was showing the high priest at age 12. He understood the first five books of the Bible. He was qualified to be selected as a rabbi, a trainee, from age 12 to age 18. I'm sorry, for 18 years, from age 12 to age 30. And at age 30, a rabbi would graduate. We don't have any information about anything in Jesus' life from age 12, from the time the Bible says he was amazing people in the temple the leaders and authorities in the temple with his answers and his questioning. From that age until age 30, the Bible says nothing about Jesus. It's because he is now being trained by a rabbi. What rabbi? What rabbi was teaching Jesus? We don't know. We do know His family had money, enough money they could hire the best. I believe he was homeschooled. He wasn't out with this other group. He was being homeschooled, probably by a retired rabbi. You know, I'm just, this is from the book of Bob, all right? This is my thinking on it as I'm reading the scriptures. Amen? Now, to be selected... To go to rabbi school from age 12 to 18. That school is called Bet Talmud, the school of the disciple. Because you are now being discipled by your rabbi. Amen. So that's the training that a rabbi would go through. And at age 30, he was now graduated and allowed to teach. Others, the doctrines that he learned. So now you have a better understanding of what was happening with Jesus from age 12 to age 30. He was being discipled. Who was doing it? We don't know. The Bible does not say. But we know that whoever it was, and it could have been a variety of people, maybe this one taught on this subject, and they hired another one to teach on another subject, and another one to teach on another subject, being ministered to by the Holy Spirit 
through the scriptures, Jesus, over these 18 years, identified himself in the scriptures. Knowing the story of his background from his mother and father, the miraculous birth, you know, the saving of his life, the, you know, how we got this money, how our family became wealthy, supernatural provision from God. Jesus understanding that he began to identify himself in the scriptures. Amen. Bible's clear on that. He knew this was his destiny. Amen. We the average Christian doesn't even like reading the Old Testament. Oh, we're New Testament believers, brother Bob. You know, Jesus there was no New Testament. When Jesus was on the scene, he was living the New Testament by fulfilling the Old Testament. It's important for you to read and understand what is in the Old Testament because some people say the the Old Testament is the New Testament hidden. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So you have to understand both and how they correlate to each other. When you do that, then you get a firm grasp on the scriptures. Amen. But there was five stages to this rabbi school. I'm not going to go into all five levels. But if you fail at any one of the five stages, you wash out. That's why I think that Jesus' parents had five different rabbis that taught him how to be basically a Ph.D. in all five things, all five levels. And at the completion of the fifth, you're at age 30, and now you're ready to graduate. Now, there are two types of rabbis. The first are those who do not have something called Samika. If you don't have Samika, then you teach scripture just like your rabbi taught you. Your specialty may be in offerings. Your specialty may be in healings. Your specialty may be in praying for the widows and the orphans. Your specialty may be in the political atmosphere. Whatever your rabbi taught you is what you have permission and authority to teach. That's what you taught. You didn't teach something else. This is where the majority of the rabbis graduated to. That's the ordination ceremony, if you want to call it that, that they were ordained to teach. Just like you know, a PhD with uh, in marketing is not the same as a PhD medical doctor. And a PhD in psychiatry is not the same as a PhD in accounting. That's your specialty that you're supposed to focus on. Amen? That is what the majority of the rabbis had without Samika. 
And once every two or three or four generations, once every 100, 150 years or so, somebody special came along that had a grasp on all the things in the scripture. And this person, when he graduated from rabbi school, was given Samika. <clears throat> Samika was authority. I didn't go over this. Let's hold that thought. Whatever the rabbi's authority to teach was, whatever his ordination was, be it accounting or healing or politics, whatever the authority and ordination that was given to the general populace of the rabbis, as I explain, that's what they had authority to teach. That's who gave them their ordination to teach that subject to their disciples. The training, the, the discipleship, the doctrine that these rabbis were to teach was called, now get this, their yoke. Because that's what they were bound to. You can't teach outside of what you know, and this is what you know, this is what you are to teach. That kept that string of teaching down through the years from this rabbi teaching his disciples. This rabbi got it from his rabbi when he was a disciple, who got it from his rabbi when he was a disciple. And you can go all the way back until the first rabbi 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 400 years ago, received special authority to develop a new doctrine, a new yoke. You were yoked to that teaching. Amen. We misinterpret that term yoke, meaning you know what you put on a cow or a, a oxen to keep it under control. That term meant and symbolized that that's what that disciple was limited to was their doctrine, the doctrine of his rabbi which is called a yoke. Alright? That's, well, we'll get to this in a second. Go back now, fast forward to where I was at, where I said that Jesus, or a, a rabbi every 150 years or so, three or four generations, was recognized as having such a total grasp on Scripture that he was given special permission to create his own teaching, his own doctrine, his own yoke. And that special authority was called Samika. So you had disciples that did not have Samika who were limited in what they could teach, their yoke. And then you had this one special one who had Samika, who had now the authority to create his own doctrine. Amen. He had authority with Samika. He had the authority to create his own yoke of teaching for his new disciples. Amen. Now you understand that. The rabbi's yoke was to be passed down from generation to generation. Remember the testimony of the Apostle Paul 
where he said that you know he was he gave his background as part of his defense. I was raised Hebrew of Hebrews, you know. Uh, I was brought up in the teaching of Gamaliel. Now he was like one of the best rabbis of that day. I was taught under his authority, under his yoke, under his doctrine, under his teaching. That's what he was trying to establish. This is where I was at. I had the best rabbi. Amen. But if you were that special rabbi, and you were given authority, Samika, then you could create your own doctrine, your own teaching. Your own line of doctrine that would be carried on generation to generation to generation. Amen. What this did was establish you as a special rabbi with Samika, with authority. And it was so rare, word would soon spread. This rabbi has authority. But how did you get that authority? How did they know you were the one? Well, in that culture of that day, like I said, I'm laying the, the foundation for this. In the culture of that day, every time you had a different change of season in your life, from being single to being uh, betrothed or being you know, engaged, you were baptized. To symbolize the old life is gone and now all things are new before you. When you got married, you were baptized again. You're no longer single. You're no longer engaged. You're now married and this new life is before you. A rabbi, as he went from you know, birth to age six and passed the first test being admitted into the elementary school of the book for the rabbis, he would be baptized you're no longer a young kid. Now you're going to learn how to be a rabbi. At age 12, you graduated, you passed, and now you're selected. You'll be baptized by your rabbi. Your old self has now gone away. Everything before you now is new. At graduation at age 30, when a rabbi would graduate and be released to teach the doctrine, the yoke that he had been brought up with, he would be baptized. That you are no, Your old life has now gone away. You are now a rabbi from this point forward. That was part of the culture of that day. You were baptized at every significant change in your life. So at age 30, now Jesus is ready to become a rabbi. Notice the people are already calling Jesus rabbi. Why? He's wearing a rabbi's clothes. Evident by when the woman that had the issue of blood said, if I could just touch his garment, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, what's so special about the hem of his garment? He was wearing the garment of a rabbi with the tassels on the bottom. She said, if I just get there and touch his garment, I'll be healed. She recognized him as a rabbi. A lot of the people that came to Jesus would say, Rabbi, why did you say this? Rabbi, why do you teach this? Rabbi, why do your disciples do this or don't do that? They recognized Jesus as a rabbi because he graduated from rabbi school. He had permission to be a rabbi. He had the garment of a rabbi. Now, in order to differentiate someone with Samika, with the permission, with the authority 
to have a new way of teaching. There had to be two witnesses at your graduation ceremony who would stand up and give verbal confirmation that this individual has such a grasp on the scriptures that he should be given some mika. He should be given the authority to create his own line of teaching. Different from all the other rabbis. So we see at age 30, Jesus coming to John the Baptist, who is baptized. He's been preaching to the crowd. He's powerful. He's been saying, there's one coming. There's one coming. There's one among you right now. He's the Messiah, and you don't even know who he is. And he sees Jesus coming over the hillside, and here he comes. He sees this rabbi coming to him. He recognizes him. That's his cousin. Even though they may have not had much interaction, he has recognition, knowledge. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes up to him and says, Okay, John, I need to be baptized. And John says, You're coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. I want to be in your authority. I want to be, you know. And Jesus said, No, no, no. I have to be baptized to fulfill the will of God. Because he has to be baptized to signify graduation from his old life into the life of a rabbi. So John does it. He baptizes Jesus. He's already declared this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is given verbal authority. And now Jesus is being baptized and he comes up. There's nobody else there to give the next statement, the second witness. For out of the mouth of two or more witnesses shall every word be established. Jesus is the word. God the Father looks around. There's nobody else going to proclaim it. So he busts through from supernatural into the natural with a spoken word. says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the two verbal witnesses. Jesus now has Samika given by God Himself. Amen. He has Samika. Now, that's the authority to create His own line of teaching, His own doctrine. So now when we come back to chapter 7 in the book of Matthew and we read verse 29. Well, we'll read verse 28. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Because this is a teaching they had never heard before. Ever. And it says, For he taught them as having authority. He taught them as having samika. Amen. Special authority. And not as the scribes. He taught them as one having samika. He didn't teach like the other scribes or the other the other rabbis. He didn't teach what they taught. He taught as the one having samika. And since a 
Rabbi, only every three or four generations, once every 100, 150 years, only one rabbi every now and then would have and be recognized as having Samika. Word soon spread around town, around Judea, around Galilee, around all of Israel, around Syria, Damascus, beyond the Jordan. Word spread. There's a rabbi that has Samika. Let's go hear what he has to say. That's why immediately Jesus began to draw these crowds to him. Word spread. He had Samika. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. And you can read the Sermon on the Mount. He taught all of this. Glory to God. It starts over here in chapter 5. Blessed. Blessed are those poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see Yahweh. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of Yahweh, the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely because of my sake. What's he saying? Because of my teaching. If you follow me and you believe my doctrine, my what? Yoke. You'll be persecuted for it. What did Jesus say about his yoke? Come on unto me, all ye that are that labor are are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now do you understand that verbiage? Now do you understand that statement? Take my yoke upon you. What's his yoke? His doctrine, his teaching. He says, My yoke is easy. My teaching, my doctrine is easy to understand. My burden is light. If you come unto me, because you're trying and struggling and going through all these things to live like the scribes have been telling you to do, come unto me. Follow me. That's why Jesus told all these people, follow me. Because my yoke, my teaching, my doctrine is easy. My burden's light. What's his teaching? What is his doctrine? The love of God. The love of God. Of God. That's the yoke of Jesus. What's the burden of Jesus? To share this word with as many people as possible. That God loves you. Now do you understand? Every rabbi boy growing up wanted to hear at age 12, wanted to hear a rabbi come up to them and say, Follow me. Follow me. So here, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they had all washed out of rabbi school, told to go home. You don't have what it takes. They go back home. They're working in the father's business. 
They were probably schoolmates in elementary school, rabbi school with Jesus, or at least playing in the neighborhoods. Jesus went to the fishing village and specifically walked up to their boat. They see this rabbi coming, dressed in rabbi clothes. And the rabbi yells out, follow me. They recognize what that meant. They knew, they under, they had longed their entire life to hear those words, follow me, given to them by a rabbi. And they immediately left their boat, their fishing net, their business to become a follower of a rabbi who had some mika. Jesus didn't have to go to that school where the 12-year-olds were, the Bet Talmud. These 12-year-olds in the school had been pre-vetted. They understood the scriptures. Jesus did not go to them. Why? Because he had Samika. He could do what he wanted. He could establish a new method of getting disciples. He could establish. He had authority. We'll go over next time. The, the rulers came up to him and the priests and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you Samika? And that's what Jesus said, I'll ask you a question, then I'll answer yours. So John the Baptist, where did he get his authority from? Heaven or from men? And they knew they were in a, a stuck spot there because if they answered one way the people would be mad if he answered the other way Jesus would have them they said we don't know he said well I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority from then just know I got it Jesus his whole doctrine is follow me follow me take my yoke take my teaching take my doctrine upon you for my yoke, my doctrine, my teachings are easy. What is it? That God loves you. That's the yoke of Jesus. The love of God. We're going to leave it right there for today. The love of God. God so loved you, He gave Jesus to die for you. To die for your sinful life. To for everything you've ever done wrong. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I accept your authority, your samika. I accept your doctrine. Pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. Come into my life. Be the Savior of my life. I accept salvation from you and what you did for me at that cross. God the Father recognized what you did and raised you from the dead. Lord, come into my heart and be Lord over my life that I may follow you all the days of my life as a disciple of Jesus, one who has Samika authority. And I ask all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
and amen. If you prayed that prayer, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let us know. Glory to God. We want to rejoice with you. Amen. We're going to take this up right here next time. And you don't want to miss it. Till next time, this is Pastor Robert Thibodeau reminding you that God loves you. We love you. And greater is he who's in you than he that is in this earth. Be blessed in all that you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time when we gather together around the word of God be blessed and remember we serve an awesome God Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli I guess? Aha in my dentist's office more than once actually Do I have to say? Yes you do In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes Excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.